So we're going to be looking at it this week. You mean like Monday? We'll be here all week. <laughs> we'll be here all week. Let's have a word of prayer and then we can spend some time with the word. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. Help us to understand. Help us to comprehend uh, this text. And more importantly, to comprehend you at a greater level. Help us to understand ourselves as well and our need. Help us, Lord, because we cannot draw ourselves to you. We need you to draw us to you. So help us this morning to be drawn to worship you, to know you, to love you, to be grateful, to be thankful, to be full of rejoicing because you are a great God. In your name I pray. Amen. <coughs> this passage this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 130 will not initially seem to be some sort of Christmas message. Although we're going to definitely link it to that as we work our way through. We're going to be looking at all eight verses of Psalm 130. It's a, just to give you a little bit of a background, uh, we don't know who wrote the psalm. Uh, it is um, in the middle of, not in the middle, actually the latter two-thirds of, um, or in the latter third of the, what's called the Songs of Ascent. There are 15 Songs of Ascent in, in the uh, book of Psalms. We've talked about Psalms of Ascent before. Just a reminder, a Psalm of Ascent is a psalm that is to be sung by the Hebrew people as they are ascending to the temple uh, to worship, more specifically as they're ascending to the temple to, to worship during one of the feast days, although they were typically sung not just during the feast days, but any time they were ascending to the temple to worship, to sacrifice to worship, they would sing those on the way up there. Um, Obviously, with 15 of those type of songs being given to the Hebrew people, you get the idea that it was appropriate for people to be worshiping God before they get together to worship corporately. And that was the point of it. It was to be focused on, on, on the Lord as you move your way towards worshiping corporately. Um, oftentimes, the songs of ascent can have some real darkness to them. By their very nature, they, have, they oftentimes are, are kind of dark. And the reason why is because we're going to worship God. We're going to come into the presence, as it were, of the Holy One. The All-Powerful One. The God of the universe. In order to do that, there's something that really has to happen. That is the reality in the Old Testament mindset, and New Testament as well, by the way. The reality that I'm not that. I'm not that person. And I don't match up to that person. That person is wholly different from me. That God is holy. I'm not. Which is why in the Old Testament, as they went up to worship, they would oftentimes be bringing sacrifices with them. Because they could not enter in the presence of God. Because of their sin. So they tend to be somewhat darker. At the same time, the, the songs of ascent also have... have uh, very strong overtones of hope and rejoicing as well. Now, today we, we kind of, in a way, reflect it with our, with our confession time that Andrew leads us in every Sunday morning. Well, most Sunday mornings. We're, we're, we're calling the church to come to repentance, the attenders of the service to come to repentance. It's one of the reasons for the Songs of Ascent is to call the the singer to come to repentance and confession in order to come and worship God. Now, 
Um, the song we're looking at, or the psalm we're looking at this morning, is well known. As a matter of fact, we sing it sometimes in church. Uh, it's a song, one of the songs we sing. You'll recognize it as we read it. It breaks down into four categories, or four verses, as it were, although oftentimes I find it interesting, a lot of commentators break it down into three. It doesn't. In the Hebrew poetry, it breaks down to four, but also thematically, it breaks down into, into four different themes or four different verses, and they're very importantly recognized. So we're going to look at all four of those as we work our way through. Let's read the text, and then we can unpack it. Psalm 130. A Song of Ascents. And just a reminder, when you see that heading like that, you'll notice it's not italicized. Right above it in my translation, I have the ESV, it says, My soul waits for the Lord. That is italicized, which means it's not inspired. It's not part of the original text. But the statement, A Song of Ascents, is inspired. It's something we should not ignore or excuse. That's why I spent time talking about what, what kind of song it is. God intended for it to be understood a certain way. A Song of Ascents. A song, another way to put that is a song of preparation as I prepare myself to worship God. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your, hear, your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, you, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Again, it breaks down into four sections. You've got one and two, three and four, five and six, and seven and eight. Oftentimes people will move five through eight into one category, but it is not. They are very unique from one another. So the psalmist, in this song of ascents, to be sung as people are moving toward worship, it starts out with this interesting line and famous line, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. That's the verse 1 and first part of verse 2. Just for background material, don't have much of it. We don't know exactly what the psalmist, because we don't know who the psalmist is. We don't really know what are the depths he's in. There's several possibilities. So let me just present them. It could very, actually, there's two possibilities of what the depths could be. Whatever it is, it's serious. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Whatever it is, it's really serious. This is not your run of the mill, oops, I made a mistake. I said something I shouldn't have said. This is not, that doesn't mean it, doesn't, it excludes that, but this is not a, a run of the, if I may use the term, a run of the mill, oops, I sinned. Whatever it is, for this psalmist, this is a horror. And it has ongoing ramifications. The description that he gives here when he says, out of the depths I cry to you, 
He's presenting a picture of a position he's in that he's been living in and continues to live in. He's in some sort of, this is a possibility, he's in some sort of horrible situation. Now, we've got to not miss the point. His horrible situation is not something along the lines of my boss doesn't like me and he mistreats me every day. What he's talking about here is quite the contrary to that. He's talking about these deaths are caused by his sin. That's the context. He has committed, this is a possibility, he has committed a sin Possibly. The ramification of that sin is striking. It's ongoing. It's unrelenting. And the result is that he feels like he's in the depths. Now, he chooses the terms really specifically. It's a, it's a mariner's term. If you're in the depths, that means you're, you're not where? You're not in the shallows, that's true, but you're not where? You're not in the boat. Right? If you're, if, if, if you're a mariner, you belong where? In the boat. If you're in the depths, it means you're not in the boat. If I may use the illustration from the Old Testament, it's like Jonah. He was in the depths, wasn't he? He was thrown overboard. I don't think it's referring to Jonah, but I'm just using the illustration. He was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish. And the big fish went where? Into the depths. Right? And that's where the psalmist, potentially, is finding himself, functionally speaking. It's as if, if you could think about it this way, if you're in the depths, there's no way for you to what? Get out. There's no way for you to get to the surface. You're in the depths. You have no hope. You have been buried into the depths. And it feels like, whether it's real or not, it feels like you belong there and will remain there forever. So potentially, I keep using the word potentially because it's one of the two possibilities here, I think. Potentially, the author of this song himself has done something. By the way, you get a picture of this. It's not David. I don't think it's David that wrote the psalm. But you get the picture of David with Bathsheba, right? Don't you? Was he not in the depths? What is how, how does David describe the results of his sin? Anybody remember? His bones ate continually, didn't they? And they wasted away. And he said what? He said, forever my sin is what? Before me. He's just overwhelmed by it. It's like from the time he woke up in the morning to the time he went to bed at night, the consequences and reality of the grossness and horror of his sin was haunting him continually. There was no escape. Does that make sense? The consequences were ever there. And the reminders of the sin, everywhere he turned, it just screamed at him. Now that is one of the possibilities. And I think either possibility is... Legitimate. I think it's probably the second possibility. In context, the second possibility probably makes a little more sense. And that is this, that it's not just the author of the, of the psalm that is in the depths, but all Israel is. All Israel is. 
In other words, all Israel had committed sin. Gross, evil, wicked sin. Had fully embraced it. And the result is that the consequence of sin was haunting them. Was overwhelming them. If I can give you some pictures, because that certainly happened in, in, in Israel's history. You've got the uh, 722 B.C. When the, uh, when, when, when the Assyrians came down and attacked the ten northern tribes. What a horror. They were so hungry they had to eat their children in order to survive. What a nightmare. Or maybe when Babylon... I'm sorry, when, uh, yeah, Babylon came and, and took the, ten, the two southern tribes captive and took them back to, to be slaves in Babylon and served Nebuchadnezzar. What a horror that was for 70 years. For probably at least 30 of the 70. The sin was there. They trespassed against God and they did it repeatedly, continually. By the way, the scriptures tell us they did it for 490 years. That's pretty repeatedly. And God finally said enough. And he brought discipline upon them. And they were in the depths. In the depths. Now, again, I'm not saying it's either one of those you know, Nebuchadnezzar with Babylon or the Assyrians. I'm not saying that. I'm just using those as illustrations. But you'll notice in verse 8, or verse 7 and 8, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So certainly the author of this psalm is calling out to all Israel. So it seems like it's most likely possible that the author of this psalm is experiencing some horrors <coughs> along with the rest of Israel. And this song of ascent, the author of the psalm cries out to God, out of the depths I cry to you. I'm hopeless. I'm overwhelmed. The sin has destroyed me. The consequences are pummeling me. I'm overwhelmed. Goes out into verse 2 then in this first section, as, as it, which could be understood as con the confession section, verses 1 and 2. He says, oh Lord, hear my voice. You get the sense that the psalmist is recognizing that he has no right to be heard after the way he's lived. He has no right to be recognized. He has no right to receive anything but what he has received. And he cries out, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. And notice, if you don't think what I just said was right, for mercy. This author of this psalm has reached the point where he knows it is abundantly clear to him he has no right to call for anything from God. He has no right to be heard. 
He has no right to expect God to respond. He has no right for anything other than judgment. He knows he deserves it. And he confesses to God that he knows all he, all he can ask for is mercy. That's it. He knows he needs mercy. He knows that what he has found himself in, he absolutely deserves. He knows that the consequences that he and probably all of Israel are experiencing are absolutely just in every way. He makes no excuses. He doesn't question God. He doesn't demand anything from God. He just asks. He says, God, please. Please be merciful. Please be merciful. And I want you to notice in verse 2, before we get off of verse 2, he says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my what? Supplication. What is any other translations? Does it say plea singular? Plural. Does suppl- is it supplication singular or plural? Plural. Absolutely. Very important that we see this. It is interesting to recognize. What you can do is you can take that word please or supplications and wrap it back into verse 1 when he says, out of the depths I cry to you and you understand that this cry is continual. It's continual. He's crying out continually, oh Lord, hear my voice. He is pleading with God continually. But his plea is what? What is his plea? Be merciful. I just, I I only have one thing to ask, and that is to be merciful to me. I plea with you, I beg you, be merciful. Something serious is going on. But before we get off of verse 2, I just need to ask a question, if I may, to all of us here. Let me, before I ask the question, let me make a statement. It'll be accompanied with a question. Here's the statement. I find that verse 1 and 2... I'm being general. I find verse 1 and 2 is foreign to most Christianity today. That's my theory. That's my observation. I can only speak observationally, anecdotally, because I've not surveyed Christianity. What I've observed in my own life And what I've observed in Christianity in general, verse 1 and 2 tend to be very, very foreign. Incredibly foreign. Now, someone could argue, yeah, but Steve, Old Testament is different from New Testament. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the promises we had in the New Testament. Oh, back up the horses, they did. 
How many times did God say, if you return to me, I will what? Return to you. Didn't he say that over and over and over? It's a promise. Did he not say Old Testament and New Testament? He's a jealous God. Did he say that? And he will visit, right? Upon sin. It's Old and New Testament both. But forgiveness drips out of Old and New Testament both. It does. Dramatically. But I find that in New Testament Christianity so often we are so flippant over our sin. So casual, maybe flipping, maybe flipping is too uncomfortable for you. But so casual over our sin. And it's evidenced by our casual approach to God in the midst of our sinning and repenting. We so presume upon God forgiving us that we just so often flippantly, oh God, please forgive me. And we move on. That's what it generally looks like. Doesn't it? It almost never has any grieving. It never has any pleading or supplications. It almost never has any crying out to God continually. Does it? That moves into my question. I just want to ask you a question. No, you don't need to verbally respond. I just want to ask you to ask yourself a really important question. In your life, in your living life, do you find verse 1 and 2 to be kind of a thematic undertone of your walk with Christ? Do you? Now, it's an important question because I, I look at, for example, Romans, and Paul says that Christians are ever rejoicing and ever sorrowing or grieving. This is the kind of thing he's talking about ever grieving over. Is wherever, if we are still sinful people, and we are, it is interesting to compare, even jumping to the New Testament, Paul's ever grieving, along with ever rejoicing, because we're forgiven, right? But he also is ever grieving. And his ever grieving isn't primarily about everybody else, although he does grieve about everybody else. He's grieving about himself. Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Other words that kind of are foreign to our New Testament Christianity that we live today. The psalmist, whoever he is, is going through a situation that is caused by sin, whether it's corporate, personal, personal and corporate, which is what I think it probably is, personal and corporate, He's crying out to God. He's pleading with God for mercy. Today we presume mercy, don't we? That's what we do. We presume it. Well, if I ask for forgiveness, he'll forgive me. My goodness. It's true. It's true. It was true then, too. He promised it. <laughs> But the psalmist didn't presume he's crying out to God for mercy. Mercy with regard to the sin and mercy with regard to the consequences. Both. He's crying out for mercy. Continually. Pleading. 
It's like a theme of his, of his, of his prayer, to be merciful. Which brings us to another question. When was the last time we prayed to God for mercy? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about travel mercies, whatever that is. I mean mercy, that he would shine his mercy upon us. Not just an a, 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 a assumed thing, is it? It goes on into verse 3. 3 and 4 is the psalmist declaring his confidence in the Lord. But notice he starts it off by saying, If you, O Lord, should have marked iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Interesting statement. Now the answer to his question is what? No one. No one, no one could stand. It's an absolute certainty. If he marked iniquities, and by the way, the idea of marking iniquities means keeping a ledger. That's the idea. If you, O Lord, would keep a ledger with regard to our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. But what's interesting is the statement, it's not just a theological statement of the holiness of God and the, and the inholiness or unholiness of man, What it is, more importantly, it sets up the next verse by the psalmist saying, once again, in verse 3, I could not stand. As a matter of fact, I, change the words, cannot stand. I can't. I am full of iniquity. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's not merely some sort of theological abstraction. For the psalmist, it's something really personal. I'm in the depths, which is the evidence of what? I can't stand. I'm in the depths. I can't stand, which is why I'm crying out for his mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Not one. Not one. But then he contrasts verse 3 with verse 4, and he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Interesting statement. It's an absolute contrast. Now we're going to come back to verse 3 and 4 a little bit later. But it's an absolute contrast. On the one hand, if you mark iniquities, and by the way, going back to verse 3 for a second, he does mark iniquities. You understand that, right? It's important we get the whole picture. When he says, if you, O Lord, mark iniquities, who can stand? Well, he does. He does mark iniquities. So who can stand? No one. But on the other side of the coin, Lord, there's something else I know about you. Verse 4. On the other side of the coin, with you, there's forgiveness. He is. This goes back to what I stated earlier. There's a promise of forgiveness in the Old Testament. But I know something else about you, Lord. With you there is forgiveness. When people confess their sins, you do forgive. And you, you do forgive swiftly. Then <coughs> the Old Testament of forgiveness is different from the New Testament because the Old Testament forgiveness is a covering looking forward to the redemption of the Redeemer coming. We live on the other side, and so the forgiveness is not a covering, but it's a removal. 
But the point is still the same. The point is that he does forgive. But with you, there is forgiveness. But here's the problem. Again, we're in verse 4. Here's the problem. Today in Christianity, I'm going to make a statement and then ask the question again. Today in Christianity, I'm just talking anecdotally from what I've observed, but I don't think I'm wrong. Today in Christianity, here's what we got. We believe in forgiveness, don't we? Don't we? Amen. Absolutely. And we should. We believe in forgiveness. And we believe also, don't we, that God forgives? And we believe that God forgives swiftly? Correct? Amen. Absolutely. But we've missed, we missed that the verse continues in today's Christianity. Because what he says here is, but with you there is forgiveness. But then the very last part of the verse is what? That what? You may be feared. That's an interesting statement. God forgives. But he forgives for purpose, is what the psalmist is arguing. You realize God does not just forgive because you ask for it? That's not, the, that's not what the text says. He forgives that he may be feared. That The word that there is a purpose statement. He's establishing a purpose statement. He forgives that he may be feared. This is really, in today's Christianity, oftentimes a radical perspective. Here's what he's saying. When he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, he's talking about that as a result, and let me be as full as I possibly can, that as a result you may be worshipped. That as a result you may be glorified. So that as a result you may be praised. So that as a result, you will be held in ultimate regard. In highest esteem. So that as a result, you may be to use the term, the modus operandi of, of how I live. My, my, my mode of living may be you. That's the idea. So he says, he forgives, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's saying, in other words, but with you there is forgiveness that when you forgive me, I will worship you. I will love you. I will spread your fame. I will glory in you. I will hold you as most valuable and most beautiful and most wonderful. I will look to you rather than look elsewhere like I did before. In other words, what it means is I will flee sin. You forgive so that you will be feared. And how is he feared? 
by me worshiping, glorifying, praising, rejoicing, spreading his name, fleeing sin. <clears throat> fleeing sin to holiness. That's what it means. See, too often in American Christianity, what I find is we have this idea that, wow, isn't it great that God forgives? Woo! Isn't that awesome? And it is. But the idea here, he forgives so that, and that's the part we forget. And so here's what happens so often. We ask for forgiveness, then we just move on in our life. Isn't that what happens? We ask forgiveness confident that he forgives, right? Woo! He forgives. It's amazing. I feel better about myself. And I feel, <laughs> I feel better about myself. It's a great way to put it. But as a result of receiving forgiveness and turning to God because we're in the depths and we turn to God and ask for forgiveness and we think we're forgiven, the result of that, we walk away and we're unchanged. We don't worship God at a greater level. We don't crave God at a greater level. We don't desire to know him at a greater level. We don't flee sin at a greater level. We don't hate our sin at a greater level. We don't glorify him and we don't spread his fame we don't we don't we're not enthralled by him anymore nothing now maybe that's not you it's not you praise the lord but that's often the way it is isn't it nothing ever changes and then later on i find myself back where back where in the depths and I cry out to God for mercy again, and I ask Him to forgive me, and lo and behold, I don't change. And we miss the point. And by the way, please don't miss my point. My point is not you've got to do better. So just hold that thought for just a second. <coughs> We just keep on going through this repetitious motion of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. God's not glorified. We're not amazed. We're not glorified. We're not praising. We're not spreading his fame. We're not fleeing sin. We're not doing any of the things that you'd expect that comes from <coughs> his mercy. Not even forgiveness. The things that, we, that should be flowing out of mercy aren't flowing out of mercy. Which begs the question, am I really receiving God's mercy? Really important question. Isn't it? <clears throat> am I really being forgiven? It really is an important question. Because he says he forgives that, this will happen. And we know that in the biblical storyline, that's what happens. Doesn't it? Someone repents of their sin, and what happens as a result? They go out rejoicing and glorifying God, don't they? Isn't that what happens throughout the scriptures? Somebody help me out. Do you ever see it where someone repents and nothing ever happens? Yeah. Old Testament Israel. And what, what just keeps on happening with them? They go right back. And then eventually God says what? I'm what? What? I'm done with you. It's a horrifying perspective. 
And you've got, that, you've got that several times. We just went through Hebrews. That's what happened in the wilderness. Isn't it? And they didn't enter into the rest. Verses 5 and 6. We come to the author's confidence. And it's personal. You're going to find personal confidence in 5 and 6 and corporate confidence in 7 and 8. Verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. He repeats it to emphasize it. And he repeats it for poetics as well. But I want you to notice a couple things. He's giving his personal testimony here of hope and confidence in God's forgiveness and his mercy. In the midst of the depths, as he cries out to God for mercy, recognizing verse 3 and 4 that, that he has no hope other than God's mercy and his forgiveness and confidence that he forgives so that he'll be feared, he says, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Do you hear that? The picture is the author of this psalm has an absolute confidence that God is faithful to his promises. May not come today, may not come tomorrow, may not come next week or next month or next year. But God is faithful to his promises. He's promised mercy to those who seek him. He's promised forgiveness. And he's promised to rescue, hasn't he? And so the psalmist's response is, I wait for the Lord. No matter how long it takes, no matter how much pain I have to go through, kind of sounds a little bit like Habakkuk, doesn't it? Chapter 3, and he says, even if there is no um, fruit in the field and all the rest of the lists, yet I will what? Rejoice in, my, in, the, in God my Savior. Even though he knows the Assyrians are coming. He's resting in God's character and who God is, not in his circumstance in life. He says, if my circumstance in life is going to be a horror, it's a horror. But I wait for the Lord. And that's exactly what the psalmist says in his confidence, his personal confidence. I wait for the Lord. He doesn't say, I've asked for forgiveness, now I've got to do everything I can to fix this. Does he? He says, I wait for the Lord. Notice what he says. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And then he goes on and he says what? And in his word... What? I hope. What a radically different perspective than we have so often in today's Christianity. I hope for a better day today than yesterday. I hope that tomorrow is a great day, even though today wasn't. I hope that all the bad stuff gets fixed. No, what does he say? 
my soul, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and the idea is for the Lord, and in his word I hope. What's that? In his declaration, I place my hope in what he has declared to me in the word of God. My hope is informed by what he said. My hope is informed with regard to what he declared. My hope is not informed by what I want, what I desire. My hope is informed and defined by what God has declared. Can I just submit to you that what we find in this confidence section in verse 4 and 5, or 5 and 6, I mean, is because the psalmist has repented. This is a picture of, of the psalmist living in repentance. Do you realize that? He's repented. He's cried out for mercy, and the implication of that is he repented of his sin. Even if it's a corporate sin. He's repented of his sin, and now he waits. Because this is what a forgiven one looks like. A truly forgiven one looks like. A, a true mercy receiver looks like. He waits for the Lord in his soul, in his whole entire being, and his hope is in what God has declared. That sounds like a change in hope, isn't it? Do you get the sense before repentance? What did he want? What did the psalmist want more than anything else? To be out of the depths, right? But he's still in the depths. He's still there. But he no longer hopes to be out of the depths. In the New Testament, they call this what? The fruit of repentance. The evidence of repentance and forgiveness is what? I hope for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. And in His Word, I hope. I rest in His Word. That's why you don't find John, if I use the example, you don't find John, one of many examples, you don't find John, the apostle, crying out to God, can't you just please get me off, off of Patmos, please? That's not what you find, do you? You don't find Paul and Silas in prison just saying, God, can't you just get me out of prison? Is that what you find? And they weren't even there for sin. You don't find Peter when he writes first and second Peter to a persecuted church. You don't find him saying, yeah, I know, I wish there was a way, I just wish we could get out of persecution. That's not what he says. You know what he says to him? Gear up and glorify God. Come on already. What is he saying? Hope in the Lord. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you've heard me quote it so many times, we look at what is unseen versus what is seen. This is just light momentary afflictions. The depths, light momentary afflictions. He said just previously, it's killing me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. They call it light momentary afflictions. Why? Because his hope is in the Lord and his hope is in what God has declared. It's the evidence the most beautiful evidence that someone has repented. They're hoping in the Lord. That's the point. 
He goes on, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And there's a big emphasis there that's repeated. It's a foreign idea to us today, what he's talking about here. So let me skin it out for you a little bit. When he says twice, more than he's waiting for the Lord and hoping for his word, or putting his hope in the word, more than the watchman in the morning. He's talking about people in the Old Testament era who were watchmen up on top of the wall. That 24-7, they had watchmen posted all around the wall of every city. And they watched outwards. They didn't watch inwards. They watched outwards. And what would they see outwards during the day? Everything was going on, right? At nighttime, what would they see? Not much. Absolutely nothing. But their whole focus is where? Outwards. Because that's where the enemy is. Correct? And so they'd stand there on top of the of the wall watching outwards. You know, that was a really dangerous job being a watchman at night. During the day, not so big of a deal. Because you saw the enemy coming. But if the enemy was coming and attacking at night, who would they pick off first? The watchman on top of the wall. Would the watchman ever see it coming? No. The point was, the hope was, that a watchman would be wounded rather than killed outright. That was the hope. Because if he was wounded, he could give out a cry. He could give out a warning. If he was killed outright, there's no warning. And so the, the goal was always, by the enemy attacking the city, would be first to take out all the watchmen and to kill them all instantly. So can I ask you a quick question? You're in the military, in the old ancient Near East, Old Testament, and your, your commanding officer comes to you and says, you got night watchman duties. You think you'd be like, woohoo, my favorite job. You think? No, worst job in the world. There's no worse job in the Old Testament era than being watchman at night. Especially if there's enemies afoot. And there almost always was. No worse job. So pretend like you're a night watchman. And you're on the wall. What do you want more than anything else? No, you don't want sleep. You want sunrise. Well, you struggle with that. Oh, yeah. Struggle is to fall asleep. Absolutely. But what you want more than anything else is what? Sunrise. Sunrise. You just keep looking east, don't you? All night long, you're looking for that hint of sun coming up, right? The first glimpse. Because you made it through the night. Do you think that's a casual desire for a night watchman? Do you think it's an occasional desire for a night watchman? Or do you think maybe, just maybe, it's a, it's a longing an absolute longing for the, for the dawn. You think? An absolute longing for the dawn. And what does the psalmist say here? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman of the morning. For the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. 
He's describing what forgiveness looks like. The result of being a recipient of God's mercy is to find myself wanting and waiting for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. Even though that is the greatest longing of a watchman in the middle of the night. He says, in effect, he's saying, my greatest longing is the Lord. My greatest longing is the word of God. Do you sense that maybe we're missing that today? Do you sense that maybe Christianity is missing something? Verse 7. O Israel, he turns, verse 7 and 8, he turns to the corporate nation. O Israel, and he says the same thing he said in verse 5, he, except it's a call to Israel to be like he is currently, personally. O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's the call. Could I submit to you that's a call of a repentant one? To call others to hope in the Lord. I think at some level... Someone who's supposedly repentant and doesn't find himself ever calling probably isn't really repentant. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. Implication, by the way, whatever it is that brought you to the depths that you find yourself in, you, you, it, was brought there, it brought you there because you loved it. That's the implication here. It brought you there because you loved it. That's why we sin, isn't it? Because we love it. But it's not steadfast love. At all, is it? Because it lied to you. It made you promises and didn't keep them. You don't believe that? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. The day you eat of it is the day you'll be just like God. Lie. Lie. Oh, it had a sense of truth to it. They knew good and evil. They could only do evil. They weren't like God. See, it wasn't steadfast. It's all lies. It's a fabric of lies. Ah, but if you eat this fruit, you'll be happy. You'll be just like God. Lies. Thought it was love. All lies. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, unwavering love. Take him to the bank. What he says is always true. Yes and amen. He never goes back on his promises. And then he goes on and says, and with him is what? Plentiful redemption. Plentiful, overwhelming redemption. Incomprehensible redemption. And he adds to it in verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from what? All his iniquities. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, Obviously, he's speaking to literal Israel here, but I want to remind you that the scriptures do tell us that we are spiritual Israel if we're in the church. 
So we can certainly recognize when he says we, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And it's talking about us as well. You see, in verse 7 8, when he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's, this is almost prophetic. It is not just almost, it is prophetic. He's talking about the coming Messiah. There's plentiful redemption. Forgiveness will be freely bestowed. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And if that doesn't blow you away, then you don't know the Redeemer. You see, going all the way back to verse 3 and 4, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Um, the reality is he does mark iniquities. And the reality is nobody can stand. But there was one who had no iniquities. There was one who had none. His ledger was spotless. But God does mark iniquities. And the story of the scriptures tells us that he took our ledgers. Didn't he? And God marked iniquities. And Jesus could not stand. And the wrath that belonged to us was poured out on him. And the scriptures tell us he bled and died. But with you, there is much forgiveness. Because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, redemption is plentiful. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, we're in the Christmas season. Turn on the radio, you hear Christmas music. Somewhere along the line, we're going to hear Luke chapter 2. If you watch Charlie Brown, you'll hear it. The Christmas story, that is, Charlie Brown. If you read the Christmas stories, you'll hear Luke 2 somewhere. Can I just submit something to you? Luke chapter 2 is meaningless without Psalm 130. Luke chapter 2 only gains coherence and understanding and value with Psalm 130. The angels saying glory to God in the highest. The only way that we can join in with the angels and sing glory to God in the highest is if we've been in the depths. We learn the contrast, right? The only way we'll ever understand glory to God in the highest is if we are people who out of the depths cry out to him and receive his mercy and are transformed. <clears throat> and fear him. And you know what we'll be doing? We'll find ourselves joining in with the angels, glory to God in the highest. We'll join in not only with the angels singing glory to God in the highest, but we will join in with the angels singing as they sing in, in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy. Worthy is the land that was slain. When we're flippant about forgiveness and flippant about mercy, 
I guarantee you would be flippant about the risen Jesus. I guarantee it. We will be absolutely flippant and casual about it. If we're not waiting on the Lord, if we're not waiting on and hoping in His Word, what He has declared, we will be flippant about the risen Redeemer and the redemption of Him. You know why? Because we're not hoping in the Lord and hoping in His Word and waiting in the Lord. You know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be waiting and hoping what? What? Well, ultimately for something else, right? We'll be waiting for something else and hoping for something else. Well, by nature, then, we're going to be what? About Jesus. Casual and flippant and cold. Which will evidence that we really aren't repentant ones. So can I just ask you a few questions? Just a few. You ever been in the depths? If your answer is, no, Steve, I don't think I've ever been in the depths. Could I just submit something to you? You may not be saved. Because Christ only saves people out of the depths. Right out of the depths. He doesn't, save, he doesn't save flippantly. He saves people who are undone. That's what he does. He saves people who finally recognize they need a redeemer. That's what he does. He saves people who realize that they cannot save themselves. They're hopeless. So he does. He heals blind people. Why? Because they can't see. It's a picture of what he does for you and I. He heals lame people. Why? It's a picture. Because they can't walk for themselves. So he does. He saves people out of the depths. Oh, and then save people? If you're not in the depths, if you don't find yourself in the depths, it's because you don't consider sin as serious as God does. If you're not in the depths, it's because you don't see Christ as glorious as he really is. If you're not in the depths, it's because you don't recognize the absolute holiness of your Redeemer. When you recognize the absolute holiness of your Redeemer, you know what's going to happen? You're going to see the absolute horror of your sin. That's what's going to happen. Are you in the depths? If you're not... That means you really need to cry out to God to open, his, open your eyes to see. Oh, he's so full of mercy. He'll do that. He will do that. It's not a fun process. It is not a joyous process. But yeah, I think we need to cry out to God to be merciful in opening our eyes to see the horror of our sin. To be merciful to us to open our eyes to see the beauty of God's holiness.
I mean, my goodness, friends, even the seraph in, in Isaiah's vision had to cover their eyes with two of their wings. My goodness. You kind of get the idea of how flippant we are in approaching God. Don't, don't you? When we see that we're in the depths, we will see the beauty of his mercy. And when we see the beauty of his mercy and realize the reality of the depth of his forgiveness, we will be people who rejoice in the God, our, sa our Savior. We will rejoice in our Redeemer. We will be enthralled with him. And we will find the love of Christ controlling us. And we will find the fear of the Lord controlling us. And we will be unstoppable. The goal of his forgiveness is that we fear his name. That we fear him. And when we do, glory to God in the highest. That's what will happen. And when we do, we will join in with the hosts of heaven, glorifying God and praising him. Amen? And I don't know about you, but I need more than anything else is his mercy. And so as we go to communion, which is a great reminder to us of exactly what we were just talking about today, we were in the depths. God did, does mark our iniquities. And without Christ, we'd be doomed. But because of Christ, they are removed as far as what? The east is from the west. Oh, that's not for you to be flippant about. That is not for you to be flippant about. That is to be blown away about. And that's what our communion reminds us of. That he took something that we could do nothing with. Our iniquities marked in the ledger. And he forgave us. And carried our ledger to the cross. And the result is we came away forgiven, rejoicing, and fearing his name. Amen? Let's fear God's name together, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we would have to acknowledge, like most Christians, that we spend way too much time being flippant. Way too much time being casual. Way too much time excusing, ignoring. And even, I guess we should say it, being ashamed. And so, Lord, we pray that you will be merciful to us and open our eyes. Help us to see the depths. Lord, help us to see your mercy. Because your mercy shines brightest in the depths. And then, Lord, I pray you will give us a heart of rejoicing that we'll be amazed at your creator.